You're listening to Drek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek comics and books podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is Mr. Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you doing this week? Doing pretty well, Chris. Uh, it's a pretty normal week. It's Wednesday, you know, so it's hump day. I'm pretty excited about that. It means the weekend's around the corner. Uh, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow here and so uh planning some things there and then of course this weekend going out with some friends and my girlfriend to see it's a good day to die hard so it's that film that's starring Worf and Bruce Willis so I'm thinking it's going to be excellent yeah I was going to say Worf is in that movie right yeah yeah um I, I think that Really, it's just him running around with his Batleth and his Mechleth at the same time and just wrecking havoc all over Russia. And so hopefully uh, Tanya will be okay uh, that she doesn't get involved <laughs> in any of that. Um, yeah, I'm a little worried about her because... Uh, don't worry. She'll pull out her Batleth. She'll take care okay, of Okay, good, good. I, I thought she had one, so... Yeah, yeah. She knows how to use it too, so she'll be good. Um, I think the full name of that movie actually is Today Is in parentheses, exactly. a good day to die hard, right? Yes. Uh, they, they felt like it just got a little long, and so they just clipped it to a good day to die hard. But when you get the actual Blu-ray or you look it up on IMDb, it is, today is a good day to die hard. Exactly. All right. <laughs> well, let's jump into book news. We have a fairly short news segment this week uh, before we get to the feature. And we're going to talk about the DS9 relaunch kind of season eight novel, Avatar, in the feature today. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the fall. And our friend Dayton Ward has shared a little bit of information about his entry in that series, which is actually going to be the final book. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see this come out. I mean, uh, he is going to be doing the last book. This won't come out till January 28th, uh, 2014. Uh, which, as we all know, will be here before we even know it. So it really uh, will, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, this is, looks really interesting. Uh, he talks about that Picard and his crew are um, going to be trying to uncover the truth behind a very prominent figure within the Federation um, who has emerged on the interstellar stage. It's discovered that the said individual may be perpetuating a hoax as to their true identity. So what it sounds like is that John Harrison has switched universes and is now in this universe, and he is about to detonate Starfleet and the Federation for all it stands for. So I'm really worried about this prime universe. Really? As you were describing that, I was thinking, yeah, so John Harrison is going to be in the fall. Oh, how about that? Yeah, and who knows? I mean, Robert April might show up. Um, I mean, this could just be a love fest of, of evil characters. Somehow maybe uh, Amir Khan could come in. I mean, who knows? I'm looking forward to the appearance of Mirror, Ensign Leffler. 
and all her anarchy that she brings with her. Exactly. Yeah, she doesn't do laws in the mirror universe. It's it's just pure anarchy. Um, pure anarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she's got a scar down this side of her face, the <laughs> right side, and it's actually a lot sexier than you might think. Yeah. So she still looks good even with that scar. Yes. So what does Dayton tell us here? Uh, besides that, he says he's intentionally being very vague about what he's giving, which of course is good. But uh, he also answers the question of who or what inspired him to write this book in the first place. Yeah, um, he did say that he's going to be able to tie up this five book series and uh, wrap up a few plot threads that may have been running through several of the books over the last few years. And so it just seemed like to him a, a really fun thing to get to do. And uh, so I'm really excited to see what it is in the latest novel verse that he will be wrapping up. Um, and then it seems like that this also might be a jumping off point again, kind of the way destiny was where it kind of reset everything. So it seems yeah. like some things may be brought to a close here and some new doors open, some doors closed. So who knows what's going to happen? I mean, if John Harrison's involved, uh, anybody could, you know, die or anything could happen. Yeah, I was going to ask you, as Dayton talks here about tying up some of the loose threads, I mean, do you feel that the novels in general have maybe become, like there's a little bit too much going on here and there and there are too many loose threads? Like, do you feel as a reader like you want to see some of some closure in some of that and then maybe a, a new push into to something new? Well, there's a few things in the novels right now that have been dealt with uh, recently, uh, Picard and Beverly kind of talking about what they're going to do with their family, um, Worf, and whether or not he would be promoted in any way uh, or allow himself to be promoted. Um, just the the relationship between the Federation and the Typhon Pact as well. All of these things are kind of up in the air, and I'm not sure how they're going to resolve it. Um and if they're going to bring any kind of resolution maybe with this series to any of those things. Um, because any of them could be a, a really large uh, change in this universe, especially if you talked about like uh, Picard doing something different than being the captain of the Enterprise. I mean, that would be huge. Um, not that I think they will, because you can't sell these books right now still without Picard, I don't think. Right, yeah. Or Leffler. Interesting. So <laughs> that's well, that's true. Got a whole <laughs> whole shelf full of Leffler books over there. Yeah. My, yeah. Most of them were not published by Pocket Books, however. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um that's that's that fan fiction that you really like though, Chris. So That's right. All right. So we'll see, yeah, when this comes out, uh how Dayton wraps all of those up. It should be very interesting to follow this five book series. Uh, let's jump over to comics. I think we've both been feeling a little bit frustrated over the past month or two. It's almost two months now, I guess, with all the delays that IDW has been having. And now we understand that the primary cause of the delays, it all began with the port strikes that were going on and they were having trouble you know, getting the shipments in. But it's kind of snowballed and... It seems like every comic is coming out late and later and later. And apparently they may be trying to remedy that and get us back on track by 
doing a comic dump on us coming up. Well, next Wednesday is going to be a huge day for Star Trek comic fans. Um, and so I am pretty excited about this, but it is going to be a lot for us to cover next week. Um, so we may have a longer show than normal because not only as we talked about last week, will Hive 4, the the end of that series, be coming out with uh, Locutus Poseidon, but uh, we'll also be having Ohura Fest. That's right. You heard me, folks. Ohura Fest. Um, more Ohura than you could possibly want. Or maybe, wait, 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 wait. That's that's backwards. How I'm you... sorry. I you yeah, can't get right. enough Ohura, uh, exactly. especially in in, in the JJ verse. Um, exactly. So ongoing eighteen, as uh, seventeen did, will be. Uh, you know, they looked at Doctor McCoy. So now we're going to get uh, uh, spotlight on Ohura and her past, uh, kind of. D- dipping into that, and but also depicting her very first encounter with Spock. The second comic coming out uh, next week is Countdown in Darkness 2. Now, whether or not this actually uh, focuses solely on Ohura, she is the cover. Uh, and so we will have to wait and see what Countdown into Darkness has for us. Um, what are you hoping for there, Chris? In Countdown to Darkness number two? Yes. I don't know. Yeah, the fact that she's the cover kind of confuses me a little bit. Although we do see from the movie trailers that have come out that she does seem to have a very active role in the movie. Um, the way that Countdown to Darkness number one ended, well, the events in that comic and the way it ended don't give me any kind of idea of why number two might focus on her. So I don't know if this is simply the design and the fact that maybe the overall story is Kirk Spock Uhura. Um, and so they, you know, did the cover this way. Cause also the fact that the Klingons are, are the fourth panel kind of confuses me because I don't think mm. that they are the main villain in the, in the movie. So, well, um, as y'all talked on the ready room and, and we saw from Harris bros toy line, that's coming out for into darkness. Uh, you know, the Klingons actually look to be, a big part of this movie somehow. I mean, we're on their home world. Uh, a bird of prey of theirs is in the trailer um, and uh, is one of the toys that will be coming out as well. So um does seem to be like maybe this movie's trinity is going to be uh, Spock, Kirk, and Uhura. Um, it, it may focus on them a lot. Uh, so I'm not yeah. surprised necessarily to see her on this cover. And and two, when you're doing this cover uh, artwork, I think you kind of need Uhura to be on there because exactly. she sells yeah. covers. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's why, you know, you mentioned Picard earlier. You know, they could maybe they should put Picard on this cover because it'll help sell it, <laughs> even though he's not actually in the story. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping, in terms of what I'm hoping for for Countdown to Darkness number two, is I'm really, really interested to see what happens in the next moment after the amazing twist ending that we got at the end of number one. Right. Um, and I think that if they don't pick up right, you know, basically the well, next panel, yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be remiss. But I, yeah, I think they will. Yeah, um, yeah they will. Um of these three that are coming out, Ongoing 18, Countdown to Darkness number two, Hive number four, which one are you most looking forward to? Now, it's Hive, right? 
Well, honestly, it's kind of a tie between that and Countdown to Darkness, and mainly just because I want to see the end of Hive. And, you know, I've got my fingers crossed for a good ending. Um, I do feel like I would probably be let down by it. And so I cannot wait. I mean, if you ask me which one of these I'm going to read first, it's going to be Countdown to Darkness 2. Um, yeah. Then Hive and then, you know, Ongoing 18. Um, just because, I, yeah, I am very excited. I mean, you know, Brandon has me hooked right now with Hive. I, I want to know what happens. And so, um, but uh, this Countdown to Darkness series was already so fantastic i think that two is probably going to blow our minds again um it's going to leave all of us going what no way so um yeah i can't wait what is your typical approach so when hive number four comes out now are you going to go back and are you going to read one two and three straight through and then read four to kind of refresh your memory because these things are so stretched out or do you just go ahead and read four and and then hop over and redo her as backstory. Usually what I'll do is I'll just read it. Um, you know, we, I feel like we did talk about three not too long ago, so I'm pretty familiar with, the, you know, especially the last few panels. Um, and actually talking about it on this show has really helped me remember these kind of things more too. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and so, yeah, I'll probably just, you know, pick up four get through it, see what happens in the end. And then I might go back and just read it all again just to see how well it all kind of fits together as a storyline, especially since we're going to be talking about it next week. And so um, stay tuned. I think everybody will really enjoy that conversation because this has been a big series. This is one of the first times we've had a creator of Star Trek come and create comics for us. And so, um, you know, this is this is a moment in Star Trek comic history yeah so yeah it's not the only time but it's not it's rare yeah, to have a four it is very comic rare. series like this is is a unique thing if i was going to ask you now if you could say have any of the creators come and do a comic what would it be that you would want to see chris as far as the topic of the comic yeah, like it could be any series, you know, say, you know, if you could have one of the creators come in, though, and do, you know, continuation of a series or anything like that, which one would you want to see? What would you want to see them do? Hmm. You know, in the vein of the type of comics, if you were to call them that, or, you know, graphic novels that we have here in Japan, which tend to have a much more serious tone to them, both in terms of the writing and the art compared to American comics, I think it'd be really interesting to see someone like Iris Stephen Bear come in and pin, you know, like a very a very extensive fill-in-the-blank moment from Deep Space Nine, maybe something from the Dominion War period, maybe something like uh, the books, the tales from the Dominion War that were done a few years back, kind of filled in all those battles and blanks from the war. You know, maybe something like that could be very interesting. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, I'd love for Ira to be involved in something like that. He is definitely a a great writer when it comes to Star Trek. Uh, for me, personally, I, I was thinking that I would love to see Enterprise Season 5 um, yeah. by, uh, you know, Mike Sussman or, or Brandon Braga or, um, you know, Manny Cotto, any one of those guys come in and, and do Season 5 um, and just kind of basically give us 
a canon version of what they would have done with season five if they could have, because I think that would be spectacular. That actually would be quite cool to, to fill in those blanks. Um, Enterprise is the one series where I feel like they could do that and I would be not only okay with it, but I would re- really appreciate it because it's that one series that really feels unfinished. You know, forget these are the voyages. It wasn't really a finale. So you were kind of, you were left with demons and, and Terra Prime and you were really left with a story in progress that was just left hanging. And and then what happens next? And so they really could do an extensive series of comics like that, that, that were officially sanctioned, that were canon, have the have Manny Cotto head it so that it really is the vision that would have been carried through in the series and fill in the blanks and lead us up to the actual founding of the Federation. Yeah, I like that idea. Well, we don't do this much here, but uh, you know, another comic series did do this for a favorite genre television show, and Joss Whedon uh, did this for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and gave mm-hmm. them extra seasons through the comics. And so um, this actually does have um, a lot of um, play in the comic world. And so I really think, I think IDW should look into this uh, because I it, I think they have a, a, a huge gold mine on their hands, basically. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Unfortunately, I think that anything related to Enterprise other than the Blu-ray re- releases that they're doing is something that... CBS is not really interested in pursuing, and I think IDW probably won't be either. But who knows? You know, maybe if the Blu-rays go over really well, maybe if there's a resurgence of interest in Enterprise, maybe they might consider something like that. Well, they definitely are pushing the Blu-rays, um, giving them a, a nice uh, job in, in um, advertising, and so. That's really exciting for me to see them doing that in the first place, you know, uh, giving us trailers for them and showing us bits of the extras already to get us excited about it. And hey, it's worked because I'm buying them and I haven't bought any of the Star Trek Blu-rays, the seasons yet. I I don't have any Next Generation yet, but I'll be buying Enterprise first. Yeah, I've already pre-ordered mine as well. So yeah, I'm glad to see that they're giving kind of equal promotion to it because uh, it would have been easy for them to just put it out there on Blu-ray and just dump it out there and say, okay, here it is. You know, we had the prints already. Here you go. How fun. But, uh, but no, they're actually investing in the, in that property. So that's really good. All right. Well, let's move on to our final news item today, which is still in comics and the countdown to darkness omnibus cover is something that we've seen mocked up in the past you know we knew what the four covers were but we hadn't seen the actual final artwork for the cover by idw and that now has finally been released yeah and i really like this it it does have a strong resemblance um to the countdown cover that they did for the omnibus for the original and uh so this is really nice this will be coming out in april right after um the fourth issue is released so you you know if you're not collecting all the countdown to darkness comics and you're just kind of waiting for that omnibus to come out it'll still come out so you can read it all before the movie um but this cover is really nice i like the way it's it's done it's uh it's just a really um like striking cover 
the way that they have everyone and the Delta Shield. Um, it definitely has a note of darkness to it as well. Um, on the outside of the Delta Shield, it's black and it it has a more ominous feel for sure than the uh, original Countdown comics did. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, it's very nicely done. I personally, just as a designer myself, I kind of questioned the cropping a little bit of Spock and Uhura, but it's a little bit off balance, but the illustrations are beautiful. And I keep finding myself peering under the helmet of the Klingon to try to see what I can find. I can tell he has a goatee. I can tell he has some thick eyebrows going up there. I'm just really trying to figure out. I kind of have a feeling that if I take that helmet off, he's kind of a cross between the original series Klingons and the next generation era Klingons. What I'm thinking is that they might look a little bit like um, the Star Trek Six Klingons. Yeah. Uh, the way that Meyer had like Chang look and, and Azadbor and even Gorkon, uh, a much more subdued forehead. Yeah. But still with the ridges and giving a little bit more um, variety too as well. Uh, you know, the Next Generation Deep Space Nine Klingons all started to look the same really um, in well, a lot of the ways yeah, the Ferengi did. did. I uh, think that was kind of a time and makeup thing, you know, because the original yeah, concept exactly. of the Klingons were that those ridges kind of symbolized lineage through the houses, like different bloodlines had certain ridge patterns to them. That was right. the concept originally, but then it kind right. of became uh, sometimes randomized and then, yeah, sometimes right. very similar looking. When you really saw that in Star Trek VI, um, that came through very well. And uh, it worked, I think, perfectly for the characters because it really made them set apart from each other and you could tell who was who. And so um, I'm I'm kind of hoping, and I think, you know, this is a huge budget film. I think whatever the Klingons look like, they are going to look pretty amazing. So, Oh, yeah, they're going to be very well done. Well, yeah, you know, Star Trek VI, I mean, Christopher Plummer came in and said, I'm not going to play this character with huge prosthetics all over my head. So they really subdued the the makeup there and just just enough that and, and he's kind of an odd Klingon if you think about it in terms of the overall uh, family of Klingons that we've seen through all the shows but I, it definitely worked for that story it definitely worked quite well he's actually I think my favorite Klingon uh, I is just he? really love him. Uh, part of it, I think, is that, you know, you put an eye patch on anyone. This is why Martok was my other favorite Klingon. You put an eye patch or you take away their eye, and, I mean, they're just automatically more menacing, even if they're a good guy, you know? Like right. Martok, he's the last guy I want to, you know, try to bum a smoke off of because I'm just afraid that he's going to chop my arm off with his decay any moment. <laughs> This explains a lot. You know, I've been wondering why you're always wearing an eye patch when we record the show, but I, I see that you you're just trying to be a little bit more menacing. Well, I, I just want to make sure the listeners fear me, <laughs> <laughs> which is yes. which really doesn't work because they can't see me. So uh, right. I'm gonna have to work radio. on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what can I say? I've got right. a face for radio. So all right. Well, that's all we have in news this week. So. Um, Hopefully, there won't be any delays in these comics, and they'll all come out on February 20th, and we'll spend the day reading through them all, and we'll have a big 
discussion about them next week. In the late spring of 2001, two years after the end of Deep Space Nine, Pocket Books brought us back to the wilderness. For all that had changed, a lot still felt like it had stayed the same. Tonight we'll be talking about Avatar Part 1, the first book in the epic DS9 relaunch. Chris, um, this is one of my favorite series. Uh, When I think back to um, this series, I was super excited. And one of the main reasons was, obviously, Deep Space Nine was my favorite show. But two, Pocket took a completely different angle with this book series. They were going to do something they hadn't done before, which was continue a show. Um, They were going to give us basically the eighth season of Deep Space Nine. And um, actually, I think this is probably the series that changed Trek books forever because now they're all kind of interconnected. Um, You have a lot of different storylines going on. And if you read all the books in the right order, you can actually see the threads running through each series. And so this series really changes um, the the landscape of Trek literature. Chris, um, back then, tell me what your first thoughts were when you, you read this. What were your first impressions? Yeah, I think you have a good point there. It's easy now, looking back, because we're accustomed to how Star Trek books are written these days, to forget that this was a really unique approach that they were taking at the time. And instead of having those standalone novels that you just read one off, they were throwing us into a story that we already knew and then taking us on a new path. And it was going to be, you know, a very serialized, open-ended story like DS9. Uh, I, I remember reading this when it very first came out and I was very excited to see it because I was left... You know, at the time when Deep Space Nine ended, I think I was left feeling unfulfilled a little bit with with the way the show ended. It's something that I appreciate now because as I've rewatched the series a number of times and I've gotten really deep into it, I like the fact that it ended with a lot of loose ends because it kind of summed up the entire show, you know, what Deep Space Nine is all about. But when this book came out, I was really excited to find out what are they going to do? How is the station going to be under Kira's command? What happened to Cisco? And and so I grabbed them right away and I jumped right into them. And like you, the approach became one of my favorite. Uh, it was one of my favorite Star Trek book series because at that time I was reading a lot of Star Trek books uh, all the time. And this approach was something that I really appreciated because I really appreciated the way Deep Space Nine had been handled on television. One of the things with it being uh, a season eight, you know, this is the season opener uh, and the first part of the season opener. Um, So after reading it, Chris, you know, and uh, thinking about this idea, this is the beginning How do you think it measures up to um, the beginnings of seasons we saw in Deep Space Nine previously? You know, season six was so epic. Season uh, seven was as well. Season five. Uh, How do you feel like this compared to those seasons and what we had come to expect from a Deep Space Nine um, season opener? Oh, that is a good question because... I think that now, of course, I'm going to kind of disregard the whole 
linear time thing at the beginning, you know, where they break down all the events here. If we just jump into the prologue, I think it works kind of well. If you if you imagine that you had this three-month break between seasons, and the last thing that you saw was Kira and Jake looking out of the window of DS9, and we pull away from the station. And then you come back and you start off with this scene of Bahala and Jake. You know, what is Jake doing now? Which is, it's kind of ironic that you would start with Jake after he was ignored so much through the latter parts of Deep Space Nine. But he is the son of the emissary. And we are left wondering what's going on with Cisco, And we do see his face staring out the window at the end. So I think coming back to this as the start of yet another season, it really does a good job of throwing you right back in to the situation. And it starts answering some questions that you've had during that break right off from the very first page. Well, and one of the neat things, too, is that, like you said, you're left with, okay, what happened to Cisco? Um, and what is Jake going to do next? What is Kira going to do next? The station is all changed. It's it's very it's going to be a very different place to be. What is this going to be like? And I think they really kind of nail it. You know, um, Jake is is suffering with the loss of his father. He's missing him enormously. Um, and they jump right into how Jake is going to have something to do with Cisco's return by giving us a new prophecy, which, you know, Deep Space Nine began to rely more and more on. And what I thought was really interesting was the fact that this this new season starts off a lot like the first season. Um, you're you're going to have a spiritual awakening here with Bajor, something new. You're going to have somebody have an orb experience that's going to change their life. Um, and you're going to have a prophecy that will kind of set the tone for the rest of what follows, at least this season. Um, and, I, you know, air quotes this season. So, um, and then, of course, the first chapter we see Kira. And, you know, so we began the show the way we ended it, which is with those two main characters and kind of how they're dealing with everything that's changing around them. I think that's a great way to start this book series. And I think it's one of the things when I was rereading this now, I think, man, this book captures me right away, especially if I've just watched the last episode of Deep Space Nine. Right, yeah, that that's a good point. I think S.D. Perry picked exactly the right threads to start off with uh, leading us into this. Do you think that... You know, Jake has gone down to Bahala. He's participating in this archaeology program. Uh, and you said, of course, he's dealing with the loss of his father. And it reminds me of when Cisco went back to New Orleans and went to work in his dad's restaurant to to kind of find himself there at, at the end of season six. And here, Jake is kind of doing the same thing. You know, he needs to get away from the station he needs to go do something different for a little while. And of course, he's going down and searching through uh, the ruins of Bahala and maybe trying to learn a bit more about the Bajoran religion 
to maybe make more sense out of what has happened to his father. But at the same time, it is a complete change in routine for him as well, which, you know, is something that you often need to clear your mind. Definitely. Um, I think that this works very well. And there are a lot of parallels here from other seasons. And uh, you can tell that S.D. Perry had spent a lot of time, I think, rewatching the series uh, to really pick that up. I think that uh, the editors had also done that to make sure that the storyline moving forward really seemed to fit within the universe that Deep Space Nine had created. And uh, I think one of the things that I noticed about this book is that it it continues the complexity of storytelling uh, in DS9, um, which as we get further into this series, as we go through the Deep Space Nine relaunch, uh, we're going to see that happen. And uh, actually by the end, it gets a little bit too complicated, but we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are some of the things uh, here for you uh, that really work in, in this book? Um, the things that you found that just really stood out to you. I like the fact that they were able to maintain some elements that provided a consistent framework for us as Deep Space Nine fans, especially with regard to Quark. I thought that Quark's role in the book really helped to give me something I could hold on to. I would say Quark and Bashir Ezri as well. Especially Bashir, uh, because I did have a little bit of trouble with there being so many new characters uh, on the station. Because while I'm following the story, which I'm in my mind, I'm picking up from what you leave behind and I'm continuing it on, but then I'm also having to meet all these new, uh, you know, minor characters, at least at this point, uh, crew members that are going on. Um, so, so having something like Quark and, and his dealings were important to help give me some framework. And, and I thought SD Perry did a really good job of capturing the voices there. The other things I think that worked really well is, and you said there are a lot of parallels to emissary, you know, where we come in and there's some kind of uh, positioning going on, I would say amongst Vedic's, in the Vedic Assembly, you know, we have Kaiopaka and Emissary, but, you know, she dies very early on in Battle Lines. And so that really sets into motion all this positioning that ultimately leads to Kai Wen coming to power. And with Kai Wen's death here, we're kind of right back there again. But of course, the Bajorans have learned some lessons from Kai Wen and her political ambitions. But I think picking this up, even though it's possible for you to feel like we're kind of rehashing things here a little bit. But actually, I think that the decision to center a lot of this around uh, the selection of a new Kai and what kind of vision the Vedic Assembly has for Bajor moving forward also provides that really familiar element that we need from the series, as well as, like you said, continuing the complexities of Deep Space Nine and I'm glad to see that they maintained the uh, religious exploration of the series here. And as I'll talk about later when we talk about characters a little bit more, I'm also glad to see that they maintained a very good balance between the Bajoran beliefs and the outside commentary 
from the Federation. It's definitely true. Um, and I think one of the other things that they really uh, do well in this book is that, uh, you know, again, with the parallels, uh, the first few seasons of Deep Space Nine, uh, Bajor is trying to figure out if it wants to join the Federation. Um, it's having a lot of religious strife. And um, so this is picking up those threads again because, you know, uh, Bajor did not join the Federation when it was going to because it was told by Cisco not to uh, because of the war. Uh, the war has, has really had a toll on this part of the galaxy again. And so very much like the beginning of Deep Space Nine, we're kind of in the same boat again. And uh, I think that's actually really interesting because a lot of times that happens in our own world. You know, we're kind of back to where we were before, but we've grown a little bit. We're a little bit different. We're a little bit wiser. Uh, sometimes we're a little more jaded. And uh, I think those are some of the things that really work and you see in this this book. Um, you know, some of those characters, uh, even somebody like Bashir, um, you know, Kira, they're not as happy-go-lucky as they were when we left them. Um and that's because a lot of things have changed and uh, life is it's just not exactly what they'd hoped for right now. Um, and that's very much and a very realistic thing. And again, it, it portrays well uh, what Deep Space Nine has always done, which is kind of give us a mirror for ourselves. And so um, and I think, too, that one of the other things, you know, I found was really interesting, you know, in the first episode, Cisco has the orb vision. And his life is altered. Yeah, he was going one way, and then, you know, basically he does a 180. Um, and the same thing happens to Ellis Vaughn, which I thought was very interesting. You know, his life is going one way. He thinks he's going to um, leave Starfleet. Uh, he's he's just not sure what's going to happen. Um, he's been in there a really long time, and he's 101. Um, right. And yet he has the orb vision and everything begins to change for him. And so I really liked that parallel again of uh, the Bajoran religion having an effect on somebody who's a complete outsider. I thought that was very interesting and, and you know, it's different for him as well. It's not the same as Cisco. So. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Did you feel too much like that was a rehash of Cisco or did you feel that it really worked as a demonstration of how these orbs affect people and guide people, just in in general terms? Yeah, I don't feel like it's a rehash. I do feel like they're using the orb in that way of helping you see how important these artifacts are. So even if you don't believe in these prophets, they can still have an impact on your life. And um, I think that that's a really interesting idea. Um, and uh, even, I think, goes to speak to, you know, for those who might not believe in God, if there is one, he is having, or whatever it is, is having an effect on their life, whether they believe in it or not. So that's a really interesting conversation and, and thought um, to have. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, again, Deep Space Nine brings us deep um, real quickly. And so I really like that. One of the things I wanted to see is that, you know, as with every show, uh, we do get sometimes things that might not work for us so well. So, Chris, were there any things, you know, in the book that you just felt like, ooh, I'm not quite sure if I like that? Or if, it, you know, we're only reading part one, so we haven't seen part two. 
kind of like a two-parter for, you know, any Star Trek series. So we're not quite sure if some of those things might get better once we read part two. But was there anything that just didn't quite work for you here? Huh, interesting question, because I really like this book. Um, you know, I guess I would say that in terms of just the storytelling for me, it's it's kind of the problem that I have with the first J.J. Abrams movie as well, which is that they're introducing characters to us. Or in the case of Roe, they're reintroducing a character to us. And I felt like a lot of the setup for the possible renewed conflict with the Dominion, the um, issues revolving uh, this prophecy, you know, that was uncovered in Bahala. Sometimes I felt like it's taken me a little too long to get to them because there's just a lot of background about characters, which is understandable. It's the first book in a reboot, they've got to introduce it to these characters. Um, I I felt a little bit, but this is just how I am as a reader. I think I, I often have, it takes me a little while to warm up to characters, whether it's Star Trek or any other novel. And uh, that here, I don't know, maybe at moments I felt like maybe it could have been handled a little bit better. But then again, that might just be, kind of a unique thing about me. What did you think about the introduction of the characters? Um, what I really like about the characters uh, that they do introduce, um, you know, we have um, the Andorian Shar. Um, we also have Ellis Vaughn. We're reintroduced to Ro, uh, who's always been an interesting character, especially from the next generation. And uh, then Prin Tanemi. Um, and... You know, we don't get a lot on Tanemi, so don't really need to talk about her, I don't think. She'll become uh, important later on in the series. But uh, what I really liked is I, I liked the character of Shar, the Andorian. I thought it, he was a really good character right off the bat, the way uh, S.D. Perry, I think, um, integrates him into the Deep Space Nine crew was very interesting. Um, this series is actually going to help us understand Andorians in a way we never have. And this is before Enterprise um, really gets into Andorians. Right. If you uh, think about it on the real timeline in terms of when this stuff was provided to us by pocketbooks, yeah, this predates Enterprise. So we didn't know nearly as much about Andorians as we do now. I did find it interesting on that note that at one point in the book, they do say that Andorians by nature are combat ready. Yes, so I was hoping we were going to get an Andorian fight scene. Um, unfortunately <laughs> not. Um, I mean, they do discover a Jem'Hadar, and I thought yeah. for sure, because, you know, Shar actually uh, is able to pick up with it, uh, pick up the Jem'Hadar with its antenna, um, because it can sense different things going around that we can't, kind of the way Jordy can see different things that we can't with his special eyeballs. Um, but... Uh, so yeah, I was really hoping. I mean, come on, where's the enduring fight scene? We're in Quark. <laughs> we need one. This would be yeah. perfect, but uh, yeah. So I really liked his introduction a lot, actually. I do like the fact that they brought an Andorian on because I was always disappointed prior to Enterprise that we did have these races like Andorians that are so famous because they're very unique and interesting in their appearance and, you know, we had Andorians journey to Babel, but we don't really get much else about some of these races like Andorians, 
in uh, even in TOS and and certainly not in Next Generation or even DS9. I do like in the novels how they do start to bring in more of these characters. And of course, I mean, it would have been very expensive at the time they were producing DS9 to have an Andorian on the show every single week as a main character, especially after they had Worf on as well. So I, I'm sure that's one reason why we tended to not get these characters as main characters. Uh, but I, yeah, I do like, and and I like his interactions with Nog as well. I think he was a good addition to the crew. Yeah, and I really like, uh, I honestly really like Ellis. I thought his introduction is really good. Ellis Vaughn is a great character. I'm going to love him as the series grows. Um, but rereading this, I was reminded why uh, I kind of caught on to him so early. Um, he has that kind of, um, he feels a little bit like a Picard wrapped in a Riker. You know, he, he has a little bit more of a roguishness to him than a Picard. Uh, he's a little bit more independent. Um, so yeah, I really but, like but that about he's him. He's 101 years old and he's exactly. He has a lot more but experience. But as Picard says, he yeah. still has plenty of years left. So yeah, he has decades ahead about. of him. He says. Exactly. Decades. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 I like, like that. I like him too because his conversations with Picard, I think, speak to how a lot of us feel, at least, you know, as we get older and as we've. Of course, we're not fighting the Dominion. We're not fighting Jim Hadar. But in our own way, you know, we're fighting our own battles all the time. And, you know, he says, basically, he's tired of fighting. He doesn't want to fight anymore. And I don't know, I could identify a lot with the conversations that he had with Picard in this book. Well, and what's really interesting, too, is that, you know, there's always the question, can you teach an old dog new tricks? And actually, Ellis is wondering that about himself. And the orb experience that he has really puts him on a new path. And uh, as we already talked about, I think that's going to be a very interesting arc. And and that question of can we do new things, can we learn new things, is, is something that we ask all the time about ourselves. And so I think that's really great. Going back to what I said a minute ago, though, about how, you know, as we get older, we sometimes we feel like we're tired of fighting I think what Vaughn does get from this and his orb vision, though, is is what we all, if we keep pushing forward, we realize as well is that sometimes it's not so much that we're tired. It's not so much that we don't want to fight battles anymore. It's that we've maybe lost our motivation in a particular one. And what we need is to, to realize, again, who we are and find a, a new challenge uh, something else that we can believe in and then we're re-energized and i think that's what happens to him here and another reason that i think he's a very good addition uh, to to ds9 moving forward definitely um and and again that really uh mirrors where we saw cisco uh, and yeah. really i think brings us uh to see that journey but in a different way and i think that's great um well, on the characters that uh, we have seen before, you know, obviously uh, some characters left. We don't see Miles, uh, unfortunately. Uh, he and Keiko have moved on. They're uh, helping with the um, relief effort now with Cardassia. Um, so what's left of the original crew is, is Jake and Cassidy. Um, you've got Kira, Bashir, Esri, and Quark, and then Nog. 
Um, and those are really the main characters that we have left. Um, what did you think about uh, those characters we had left, especially um, Bashir and Ezri? They they get a lot of play here. Yeah. Okay. Well, Bashir and Ezri. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think each of them individually work pretty well. You know, Bashir feels like Bashir. Um, I like the bits about what Roe was expecting Bashir to be like versus what he was really like. You know, she was discovering that he wasn't just this uh, standard Starfleet medical, you know, arrogant guy. Um, which is we talked about on the orb recently when we talked about Bashir. We talked about he was kind of that arrogant guy at first, but, you know, as the series evolved, he became right. a much uh, more mature person. And I think that carries through well here. Um, you know, the I know you and I have different views of the the whole Bashir-Ezri relationship thing here. I, I kind of thought at the end of the series that the Bashir-Ezri relationship was a little bit odd. I mean, I didn't have a big problem with it, but a lot of that stuff just happened really quickly at the end of the season. And I personally on the show did not find Ezri to be a particularly interesting character. Uh, I know in the books they do develop her a lot more. So I'm kind of going by, we're talking about this as being the first episode of season eight, you know, picking up where we left off uh, because things felt kind of sudden in what you leave behind for me in terms of Ezri and Bashir. Uh, this is one, you know, like I said, I think S.D. Perry did a really great job writing this book. The the one thing that felt wrong to me was there's this scene here where uh, Bashir and Esri are in bed and and they're having sex and Esri starts remembering a moment with Jadzia uh, where Bashir gave up his bunk on the Defiant to Jadzia and Jadzia, you know, had thought about that afterwards and Esri is remembering how she felt and so Bashir picks up this kind of glint like looking in Esri's eyes, suddenly he realizes it's Jadzia and it's not Esri. And that, you know, creates some problems that play out through the book here between them. But the problem I have with it is I, I felt like the writing was off. I felt like Bashir had a very childish reaction and that Bashir wouldn't react that way in that situation. And it kind of artificially created this, this, uh, kind of coldness between them that has to get resolved through the book uh that didn't quite work for me in terms of the characters but now you're a big Esri fan so what did you think about that yeah this is the thing for me that will bother me throughout the entire deep space nine relaunch and honestly pissed me off um did you, did you throw love... your book across the room? Did you no, slam it well, against the wall? No, well, it's my iPad now, so I definitely didn't throw that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't want to do that. But uh, I was so disappointed because I, I felt like they had done a great service to Bashir's character, played something out really well, gave him a chance to be with Adax. Um, you know, he's somebody who had been in love with Genzia obviously a long time, but the way that they had played his relationship with Ezri on the show I thought was really good he had um actually approached this very differently he had learned a lot he had grown um and they had actually become very good friends and had nothing to do with attraction and so when it finally got to the point where it was attraction it felt i th i thought real you know um 
and people tend to accelerate things when they think they might die. That's what happened, I think. Um, this book in the series will have Esri figuring out who she is finally, which is was the main problem in the, in this right. seventh season. Um, but, but, but it was does, an understandable one. Like I, I don't, right. I don't blame the writers for that. Uh, I mean, I, I think that was handled well on the show that she was thrust into that situation of being right. joined, and she really wasn't ready for that. And, and it was natural that she would be trying to figure out who she is. So right, that aspect worked for me. And and so as they do that in the book here, I, I have no problem with it. But what they use it to do is, I think, to force them apart. And I think, as you said. Bashir already understands Trill really well. Um, I don't think he would have as big a problem with this as he does in the book. I, I think it's kind of just... Um, it just doesn't ring true for me. Right. And I, I think that these characters could make this relationship work. Um, I think their reactions, both of them, especially coming from somebody who has a 300-year-old worm in her, are very childish. Um, and yeah. she's really, really selfish uh, here. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. you know, I've read a lot of relationships books. I've been through my own divorce. Um, I've seen relationships fall apart around me. I've seen them succeed. And the one thing I know is if you're going to be together for the long haul, um, you need to be patient and you need to be um, uh, compassionate and caring uh, and know that not every day is going to be a good day. Um, and, and actually, I thought it was interesting because uh, this is the same advice that uh, Bashir gets from Vic when he goes to see Vic and talk about the relationship. And, you know, Vic tells him basically, look, that is the beauty of, of getting to have a long term relationship is you got plenty of he, he says elbow room to figure it out. Um, but unfortunately, as the series will progress. Uh, they just um, they continue to kind of be childish in this and be a little less wise in it than the hologram, which is a little sad. So, uh, yeah, I was disappointed. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that that's an aspect where, and I mean, it can be difficult to write relationships like this. And I think it depends a lot. And again, I don't know S.T. Perry's background. Um, you know, you just described your background a bit. You know, and me myself. You know, I've been with my wife for twenty years. I've been through all this uh, stuff. So it depends on your experiences and all, and it can be difficult to write relationships and write them realistically. Uh, this is the probably the one point in this book that's kind of a failing for me. But just sticking with Esri for a minute, I did see kind of the seeds of her journey down the command path. And, you know, as we know from the series, she eventually becomes captain of the Aventine. Uh, during the battle scene early in the book when they're trying to fight off the Jem'Hadar raiders and uh, and she is having to take command of the Defiant, uh, you, you, you can see uh, growth in Ezri's character there. You can see that she's kind of maybe learning to channel. You know, they talk about how she's getting the confidence from Jadzia at that point. And, and I think you can start to see her potential down the command path. And realizing that you know this this counselor thing is probably actually not her real calling. 
Yeah, and I really like that because, I, again, I love the character of Esri. Um, I actually love that later on in the book she gets her own ship. I think that the way they work this through in the Deep Space Nine relaunch and then um, right into the Typhon Pact where they give her the Aventine, which is amazing. Um, I, I think that all works perfectly for me. So I don't have a problem with that. I just, for me, I have a problem with the way they deal with the Bashir Ezri relationship. Yeah. And I think that it could have just been handled much better if you're not going to have them be together. Um, you know, have them spend a long time together and figure out that this isn't what they want, actually. This is what they thought they wanted, but it's just not what they want. And that happens to, you know, what? 80% of relationships, 90% of relationships. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. Um, I don't think there would have been anything wrong with that. Um, yeah. Or just have them stay together forever. I would have been fine with that too. So, um, but well, yeah, I, I like her character growth here. I think it's really organic. Yeah. On a character by character basis, I think that SD Perry did a good job with them here. Yeah. Can uh, Let's talk about Roe for a minute because... I was never a big fan of Roe on The Next Generation. Um, and I think as all Deep Space Nine fans know, Roe was originally supposed to be the first officer instead of Kira on DS9 in the original concept of the show. And I was always very happy that they didn't do that because the Roe character that we knew from The Next Generation, I thought would have been all wrong for Deep Space Nine. But now that Cisco is gone, and now you have Kira in charge of the station, Kira, ha she's learned to kind of temper her religious beliefs a bit, I think, to, to not let them overpower her decision-making. But still, she is a devout Bajoran. You know, she believes that Cisco is the emissary. She believes in the prophets. I think it's excellent here at this point in the story, if we want to call it the eighth season, that they bring Roe on to the station. Now, she's, of course, not the first officer here. She's the security officer. But she's a Bajoran who accepts the fact that these aliens exist and they live in the wormhole and they influence the affairs of Bajor. And as you said a little bit earlier, they exert influence on the lives of everyone through their actions. But it doesn't mean they're gods. It doesn't mean that they're supernatural beings. It means that they're aliens to her. And uh, I think that this is really important. If they're going to continue down the path of the storyline of the Bajoran religion, which I think they absolutely should, because it's it's one of the most interesting threads that you know holds deep space nine together i think it's really important that they have this character who can balance that so that we can continue to have that commentary from the bajoran perspective and from the outsider perspective and in a way doing it through the mouth of a bajoran themselves it makes it even stronger for me I think you're right in the sense, too, that, you know, we haven't seen a lot of different types of Bajorans. Most of them are devout. You know, we have seen a few uh, Kai Wen use the religion for, you know, evil purposes uh, and, and selfish gain. But Well, selfish gain, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Roe is just somebody who's basically 
she's agnostic in a lot of ways. And uh, that's a very interesting thing to see in a Bajoran. Um, and a lot of times Star Trek does a bad job of giving us nuance in its alien species. Uh, and so right. this adds a lot of nuance and this is a perfect addition to Deep Space Nine. And I think too, you know, especially in this book, she's dealing with that question, can you go home again? Um, and that is a huge question for so many people. Uh, and I think it's one that as Roe works through, it helps us kind of think through those issues for those of us who may have, you know, left home, done a lot of things we weren't proud of, had a lot of things happen to us that we're, you know, we wish we could forget and we'd like to go home, but now everybody knows everything we've done and we're just kind of the black sheep. Uh, this is a great question, and it, a lot of people face this, face it myself, uh, and I like that Roe is having to deal with this, and I liked at the end, even in just this part one, that she comes to the realization that I can make this work. I want to make this work. I want to be here, um, and I thought that that was a, you know, already getting some great character development out of, like you said, wasn't my favorite character from The Next Generation, but from here in this book, she's really working for me. And so I'm very th glad that yeah. uh, they inserted her into the Deep Space Nine series. And again, <laughs> Deep Space Nine takes a character from The Next Generation and makes it better, the same way it did with Worf. Um, and uh, so I, I think that that... Um, plays to the strength of just how Deep Space Nine, you bring a character in, it's a character-driven show, it's a character-driven book right. series. So, yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. That. I mean, I think Deep Space Nine does that to TNG characters like Miles and Worf and now Roe because it is a character-driven show. Um, by its very nature, it's designed to take us week after week and to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into these characters as the primary focus. Whereas with The Next Generation, the primary focus was about the planet that we're visiting or the problem that the crew is solving. It was not so much about the characters. And so perhaps, uh, I mean, we could say they make them better. I think what they do is they make them more complex and they make them deeper. They 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 open up, you know, a a window that we can see more into these characters. I, I I really appreciate the fact that they chose an existing character to play this role in this story instead of bringing in a new character. Because if they brought in a new character, well, we have to be introduced to the character. We have to remember their name. We have to remember what race they are. And then we have to remember all these details about them at the same time that they're trying to deliver this counterpoint to what's going on uh, with the prophecy here. And the fact that we already know all this stuff about Roe, you know, we already know she's a Bajoran. We already, we already know what she looks like in our heads. You know, we can envision her character, her voice, everything about her. And we know that she is a rebel, that she goes against the Bajoran beliefs. So it's all established. And then uh, by using her, Perry can give us that, that message uh, instead of, trying to uh you know throw so much new stuff at us at once so it was a really good choice and a surprising one for me too because like i said i thought she was a terrible idea for ds9 when they were kicking around the <laughs> conception of the series 
Yeah, I was definitely much happier when uh, it was just Kira. Uh, she worked so well for the show. Yeah. Well, the last thing that I kind of wanted to mention, because uh, it harkens back to the end of the series uh, of Deep Space Nine in season seven, was just this idea of the end of the war um, and the toll that it's taking on the Alpha Quadrant and all the people involved. And I, this is really where I appreciated having um, the Enterprise in the story. Um, because one, you know, unfortunately... Uh, Deep Space Nine uh, never got to have the Enterprise be involved in anything. We didn't even hear of the Enterprise doing anything, which really bugged me. Uh, if there's one thing that bugged me about Deep Space Nine is they could never mention what the Enterprise was doing because, you know, they were doing movies. And uh, right. then the movies never touched the Dominion War, which would have been pretty awesome. Which was um, a major, major oversight, I have to say. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I really liked getting to see this here of uh, the toll that the war has taken um, and really played out through the weariness of the Enterprise crew. Uh, you know, Riker and all of these people have been through the ringer and they have been going nonstop, you know, for a very long time. And I thought that this was just a great reminder of what the galaxy has been through. We see some of that on Deep Space Nine. Uh, but, you know, seeing this on one of you know, Starfleet's greatest ships, um, and obviously would have been very busy during the Dominion War. Um, you know, they do mention their run-in with the Baku, but we also know from the novels the Enterprise was very involved in many different battles, whether it was Beta Zed taking that back and otherwise. Yeah. So, I mean, naturally. Um, yeah, I mean, it yeah. would be no other way. It's the flagship of the Federation. Which, exactly. Which does make it's it a Picard, clear oversight. I mean, yeah. Um, so yeah. I just thought that this was a, a really great addition to this series. And again, Mir's emissary, you know, having the Enterprise involved. Um, yeah. Perfect Mir for what we saw there. Did you think that worked, Chris? Did that work for you to have the Enterprise involved in this? Yeah, it did. I mean... There's some disjointedness because, okay, so the Enterprise is on its own little mission. So we're, you know, we're cutting between what's happening with the station being attacked by these rogue Jim Hadar and then the Enterprise out here in the Badlands. But I think it's an important reminder that, and like you said, this is something that the shows didn't always do a good job of. It's an important reminder that all this stuff is happening in the same quadrant. I mean, in the same in the same universe, the same galaxy, the same quadrant. Of course, the Enterprise is out there. Of course, the Enterprise is playing an integral role in what's going on. Like you said, it's Picard. And it's the flagship of the Federation. And of course, things are going on. And there's something, I don't know, it's almost comforting, I might say, when Picard and Geordi and Data show up. And, you know, when you read that stuff, it's like, it's like you're there, but the, the voices are just there in your head. And and uh, S.D. Perry does a great job of writing all the TNG characters here, I think. You know, it, it sounds like I'm watching an episode of TNG. And so I thought it was, a, it was a great idea. And of course, it's, you know, largely they're just to set up fun uh, with the experience. But I, I, I like it when they do tie in tng to the orbs as well and and coming back over and like you said it does bring us full circle back to emissary um i i think that um 
Okay, well, here's the question. If the Enterprise had not been in this story and Vaughn was just this Starfleet officer who was on a transport and he had some kind of orb experience and he decided maybe I should go to Bajor and find out more about this because it's kind of making me feel better about where I am in my life. Would that have worked for you just as well? Or did having the Enterprise here strengthen this book for you? You know, I think it just worked better having the Enterprise involved. Um, and the main reason is because it makes it feel important. You know, you, you, you read that the Enterprise is doing something and you automatically know this is an important story. Um, right, this is going to be important to the story. It's not just going to be something on the side. And I really liked that. Um, and as we talked about with the um, beginning here is that this book series really sets up this idea that what's happening in the novels is all going to be referenced between them from now on. Right. And, yeah. and a lot more heavily than it had been. I mean, they they did before look to their kind of own continuity in the novel verse, but now they're really going to begin doing that in a, in a much more concentrated way. And so having the enterprise here involved, uh, helps me see that, like you were talking about, it's, it's the flagship of the Federation. Uh, yeah. it's going to be involved. We're all in the same quadrant. And as we all know, the quadrants really aren't as big as they'd like to make us believe. Um, <laughs> well, they can't uh, be that big because, you know, sometimes the enterprise is the only ship in the quadrant. Exactly. <laughs> you go, you go exactly. Back to TOS. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I think that this just uh, is a great job, and it um, it does add to the weight of the story that they're telling here, and I think that that's great. Um, I'm very glad that they decided to use and mirror inter- uh, Emissary in this way, um, yeah. so this is great. Now, I do have to say that I think there's a little bit of marketing behind it as well, though, because, you know, the cover the cover is Picard and Kira. Now, you have to think, when you're trying to pull fans in to buy these books, if the cover had just been Kira or if it had been Kira and Jake, I mean, do you think people would have paid quite as much attention to this as having Picard on the cover, especially remembering at the time that this was published when TNG was, you know, really in the heyday of its big screen time? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it works much better to have Picard on the cover as well. (laughs) And it helps, you know, Pocket is taking a risk here. They're going to do something they haven't done before. Yeah, that's true. And relaunch a series. Um, And because of the success of the Deep Space Nine relaunch, we get the Voyager relaunch. uh, We get the uh, Next Generation relaunch by giving us the A Time 2 series, which helps explain the lead up to Nemesis. And then they'll give us after Nemesis. And so uh, it's really due to the risk that they took here with Deep Space Nine and its relaunch that we get all of the other books that we have now, which, you know, thank the Lord. I'm so excited that that happens um, because this is, this is fantastic stuff. And um, I, I think that the quality of the Star Trek books and their writing on a whole got better because of this kind of thing. In this yeah, th- that's and definitely so. true. I agree with that. You know, it's interesting that in this case, Deep Space Nine kind of plays the role 
of the next generation. You know, it was the success of the next generation uh, first couple of seasons that actually gave us Deep Space Nine and Voyager and Enterprise and all the movies and, and ultimately all these books that we have now as well. And so as you describe that, Avatar plays very much that TNG role here in the book world of uh, giving that success that allowed Pocket to say, okay, yeah, we're going to keep going with this. Yeah, and uh, again, so thankful because uh, this has uh, always been my favorite relaunch series. Um, It's probably tied now with actually... Uh, the relaunch that they did for Voyager with Kirsten Beyer and how good her books have been. And yeah. uh, the way that she's written that series really reminds me of how this series started just with a bang and it's just kept going. And so yeah. uh, this is great stuff. Um, before we wrap up, the one point that we really haven't touched on very much here is what's going to be coming up. The fact that Jake, who is someone who you know I've never seen him as someone who really believes in the Bajoran religion or in the prophecies about his father that much is now going to be the catalyst for possibly uh, as we go into the next book bringing Cisco back uh, he's really bought into this prophecy that was uncovered in Bahala uh, about the avatar which is of course the unborn child that Cassidy is carrying right now and uh, the second child of the emissary and then his own role as the first child of the emissary, you know, and, and entering the temple. And uh, what, just as, you know, kind of as we wrap up, what do you think about this particular story? Because it's it's kind of glossed over. It, it, you almost forget about it. You know, it's introduced in the beginning of the book. And then all this other stuff goes on all the way through the book. And then at the end, you know, he goes in, he's trying to get a ship from Quark, and he's going to go, and he's going to go and try to get his dad back. And it kind of comes back to you at the end. So what were your thoughts on, on, on Jake's role in that? Well, again, I thought um, that Jake is mirroring his father in the way that he comes to uh, believe in the prophets. Um, Cisco has a really slow journey in being the emissary and actually becoming a true believer. And you almost get the feeling that... Um, Jake is a true believer, or at least close to being one in the prophets because of all he's seen, all that's happened. Uh, And as he's read um, through the pages that he has, everything fits for him. Um, And of course, he wants his father back. Uh, And I think he's seen that the things that are important to his father have also become important to the prophets as well or at least Cisco has made them important to the prophets. And so I think that Jake really does see that he has some destiny to fulfill here. And I think that's a really interesting place for Jake to be um, because, yeah, you know, he, he, he hasn't really had a lot of, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, Jake's not somebody that got a lot of play, especially in the later seasons of Deep Space Nine. Um and not a lot of character development. So I like this character yeah. development because I never had a problem with Jake as a character. I just had a w- problem with the fact that they kind of um, forgot about him as a character. Well, and yeah. I so, mean, we talked about this a little bit on The Orb as well, you and I did, about how Jake was important to the series in the beginning because he 
he allowed Cisco to be a family man. He allowed Cisco to be different from the other captains. You know, he was a single father. We got to see two different sides of Cisco because of Jake. We got to see him in command and we got to see his nurturing side as well. But as Jake got older, the writers really didn't know what to do with him, I think. And then they went down that kind of strange path of him being a writer for a Federation youth service that we didn't know existed prior to that. And and then they kind of stopped using him in the show, more or less, and which is why it was a little bit odd that he is one of the last images that you see of Deep Space Nine there in the window with Kira. Uh, yesterday, actually, I, so I, I'm watching... Um, Deep Space Nine a lot, and I check in to get glue. And so I see some comments about DS9, and someone posted, tell me again why Jake Sisko exists. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I understand if you're saying that about Jake Sisko in season six, maybe, but if you've really watched Deep Space Nine, you, if you get the show, you have to be able to see why he exists on the show and why he was made part of the cast in the first place even though it kind of you know petered out as it went along so i don't know i see comments like that and they kind of puzzle me sometimes but but here they are giving jake a new path and a new vision and a new purpose for being part of deep space nine and so it's going to be very exciting to see that play out that definitely sets up um, what we're going to see in the next book, I think it's fantastic. Um, we didn't even talk about uh, the fact that, you know, there's a Dominion attack. Is there going to be another war? Uh, you know, S.D. Perry really ramps up at, just like you would any two-parter um, that's uh, season opener. And uh, it leaves you hanging, just waiting for next week. Yeah. Um, or at least well, waiting till you know, if you got lucky, they showed both parts at the same, you know, night. <laughs> Um, and so you just had to wait till the commercial break ended. And so, um, having to wake, I think, I think the next book came out about a month later or something like that. Um, yeah. And you, I just couldn't yeah. wait. So, uh, it's a very good series. Or if you're unlucky like me back when DS9 was actually on and your local affiliate, instead of playing the next episode, they keep playing fascination over and over and over. <laughs> they played, they played fascination three times times in a row instead of the new episodes it was like intern month at the local television station i don't know what's going oh, on <laughs> you poor unfortunate soul but but here uh yeah you have this vision at the end now i have to say the, the whole the three ships attacking the station i i never bought in to that build up that the dominion was planning some kind of attack for me, I, I I never for a moment thought that that's what was going on. I'm glad that Kira was portrayed as being you know skeptical that that's what was going on as well, because I would have been disappointed if if everyone was just buying into the fact, oh, there's a Dominion attack. But of course, here the Klingons and the Romulans are going to see this as an opportunity to try to maybe shift some things in their favor in terms of how the treaty played out. And as they and Starfleet are amassing this big fleet. It is like a vision from DS9 that you've seen on the show before, you know, where like this massive fleet is gathering and they're about to set off on this mission and then it's to be continued and it goes black and then you're going to have to wait. So it was an effective buildup in that sense. Well, 
I'm very excited that we'll be continuing on in the Deep Space Nine relaunch, um, hopefully every month hitting another book, and so uh, slowly taking this uh, step into our larger world here and uh, through Season 8, uh, so to say. And so hopefully you'll join us, you'll read along with us. We'll be, uh, hopefully next month, we'll be looking at uh, the next book, which is Avatar Part 2. Um, and so you'll have a chance to catch up even if you haven't ever gotten a chance to read um, these books. They're fantastic. Uh, and if you did enjoy Deep Space Nine or you just want to see what happens after the series, it, it's totally worth it. It really is. And yeah, just grab both of them and read them straight through because book two is actually a lot thinner than book one. I I almost mm-hmm. feel like this should have just been one book, but of course then you would lose the suspense of the cliffhanger right. if you did that. <laughs> but but they are good. All right. Well, Matthew, let's tell everyone where to contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on anything we talked about in news today or on Avatar. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that'll come to Matthew and me. You can, of course, go to our new forums at trek.fm slash forums. There is a section there dedicated to literary treks, and uh, you can discuss the books and all the other topics that we're talking about on the show with us there and uh, with other listeners. You can go to facebook.com slash trekfm and find us there, and also on Twitter under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, what if people want to find you? Well, if you want to find me, of course, I do the book reviews at Trek FM, uh, as well as doing the Orb with you, our dedicated Deep Space Nine podcast. Uh, so if you do enjoy Deep Space Nine talk and you can't get enough um, doing our relaunch here, please join us for the Orb. Uh, that would be great. Uh, and then, of course, um, I am on Twitter. So please follow me, MattRushing02, talking about all sorts of things, obviously Trek books, uh, Deep Space Nine, all of Trek really, uh, and anything else that just comes along that's interesting. Excellent. Well, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is CBrianJones, that's Brian with a Y, and you can find me pretty much anywhere in social media under that name. And on the network here, uh, of course... As Matthew just mentioned, you can find me on The Orb, where we talk DS9. Uh, You can also find me every week on The Ready Room with Greg Harbin and our wide-ranging panel of guests as we uh, take a both a serious and a humorous look at Star Trek news. Uh, And then we have a big feature discussion, and uh, we do DS9 a bit, and we rotate through the series. We just start with TOS, and we go through, and we start over again, so... No matter uh, what part of Star Trek is your favorite, you can always find something interesting going on over there. Well, we'd like to thank you all for joining us. And until the next time, live long, read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.